Uh, don't just bring the greetings of my wife and uh, rambunctious children that are in your other building here, but also the love uh, and the friendship and the well wishes of Christ Church just up the road. Uh, this morning in the first service, I saw one of our parishioners who comes here as well in the morning sometimes apparently and just felt immediately uh, a, f- a family bond. Uh, and so Roger and I have, have already talked about optimistically about the future, the the camaraderie and the, the, the working together that we hope to see between our parishes and, and all of the Anglican parishes in the Grand Strand. And just like you guys, I assume last week, uh, just like you, we gathered together Sunday morning and celebrated. There we go, right? Special Sunday, important Sunday, right? Celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, celebrated God's victorious uh, uh, defeat of evil, the power of sin and death. And every Sunday, or most Sundays, uh, we gather and we celebrate in the Eucharist the same, right? But Paul says when we eat the Lord's Supper and drink, we celebrate and we proclaim the Lord's death and celebrate his resurrection until he comes, right? It's a sort of, of in-between that we find ourselves in, right? We're, we're constantly celebrating God's victory that has happened while we await the fulfillment of it in our future. Um, the gospel passage today gives us kind of an early picture into the disciples' own, maybe the first moment almost of their in-between, right? Their in-between of Jesus being resurrected and them joining him in his resurrection, which we're still waiting for. And it gives us an interesting picture of their in-between. I think it's a picture of their in-between moment that is illuminating for us. So let's just rehearse Holy Week, right? Uh, It was a pretty bad week for the disciples. Started off pretty strong. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, being hailed as the son of David, the king, who was going to come in and free the Jews from Roman oppression and celebration. And then four days later, the disciples watched as one of their own betrayed the man to whom they had devoted their lives, as their, their leader, their teacher, their friend, who they believed to be the Son of God, was handed over to his enemies, was mocked, was beaten, was stripped, was scourged, was crucified, was killed, was buried. If they slept at all Friday night, they woke up Saturday as dead inside as Jesus' body was dead in the grave. Have you ever had an experience like that where you wake up after a tragedy and, and almost can't even reconstruct for yourself that this is the scenario that you're waking up in? That next day, uh, was Sunday, so it was the first day after their Sabbath. It was the first day that they could go back to Jesus' tomb. And, and some of the women went, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, some other woman went back and brought spices. And they were going to uh, treat Jesus' body uh, with the, the, the kind of burial that it, was, that it deserved, more than it got the hasty burial that it was given on Friday before the Sabbath. Um, and Mary had the first encounter with the risen Lord. Not the disciples, Mary Magdalene, prostitute who had been filled with demons, has the first encounter with the risen Lord and is commissioned by him as the first one to bring the news of his resurrection to the apostles. And she does so. And then we get this scenario. 
We have the apostles who have followed Jesus around for three years and seen him still water and heal blind people and raise people from the dead. We see them hiding in a room behind locked doors because they were afraid. Even when Mary, even when other disciples who had encountered the risen Jesus come and tell them that the tomb is empty, and even more than that, they've spoken with Jesus, and Jesus has told them to come back and tell his disciples the same thing that Jesus told them time and time and time again before his crucifixion, that he was going to be killed, but he was going to be raised on the third day. They, they, they refuse to believe. Right? One of the synoptic gospels uh, uh, retells it as, Uh, They were arguing with the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. They were arguing with them that that couldn't possibly be the case. It was just an idle tale. They must be mistaken. They They were committed because of their fear to live in that fear, to not accept the message from their risen Lord. And then Jesus shows up. But but first, let's take a moment. And ask, what were they afraid of? Like what, what was it that, what, what fear was so controlling of them that they refused to, to come out from behind their locked doors? I mean, probably first on their mind was being afraid of violence. And they just watched the Romans brutally murder the most powerful person they had ever. I mean, he, he, he could control things around him, and he was murdered on a cross. They were probably terrified of violence to, to, to their bodies, of, of their own death, right? Underneath that, though, was probably fear of the future. They had committed themselves to this guy, right? left their families behind. Many of them left livelihoods, jobs behind. Not all of them could just go back to their father's fishing business. You know, they had, one of them had left his his place as a tax collector to go follow who, someone who was now a failed Messiah, terrified of how they were going to provide for themselves, what, their, what, the, what the rest of their lives looked like. They were probably terrified of all of their enemies that they now saw lurking in the shadows outside that room. Right? The Jewish leaders, the Romans who might be eager to squash the rest of this little messianic movement. I think they were also really afraid of facing the question of who they were now. Right? Jesus, had, Jesus was the fulfillment of their culture as God's people, the fulfillment of their political aspirations for, their king, for, for God's kingdom to be reestablished and the Romans to be kicked out. It was the fulfillment of their religious hopes. It was the fulfillment of all of the aspects of their identity. This man, who at this moment seemed like an utter failure, a, f- a fraud. How could, how could he be dead? How could this have failed? They're terrified to face a question, where does that leave me? Where does that leave us? Who, who, who am I now? Who are we? I think that we're often tempted by our culture to live in our in-between as Christians, ruled by these same fears. I think, I think, unfortunately, the way in which we often go about our Christian life looks much more like this early moment of the disciples' 
in between rather than the disciples in between after they meet Jesus in Acts where they're going around boldly proclaiming the good news. Right? We're afraid of physical violence. We're terrified of the ailments of our body, hope in doctors, violence to ourselves, hope in gated communities, hope in guns that we can buy, hope in security systems, hope in self-defense classes, hope in laws, police forces, all of that. We're terrified of the future. So we obsess over our kids going to college and getting good jobs. We obsess over the mortgage rates and inflation and our savings accounts and will we have enough and how much do we need to save up by a certain age in order to be able to retire at this level, right? I mean, how, how much of our news is devoted to that? How much of our thinking, how much of our time is caught up in our anxiety about that? We're terrified of our enemies, everyone who's not like us, everyone who might want to take from us, people who don't think like us, people across the aisle politically, religiously, people who don't look like us, people who don't live near us, and we want to be far away from them to protect ourselves behind the locked door that gives us some sort of security that prevents others from taking from us, from taking what's ours, from taking what we have. But I think underneath all that is we're really, really terrified to face up to the question, the hardest question of all, which is, who are you really? Who, who am I? Do I actually matter? Where do I, where do I find myself situated in this world? Who, what makes me me? Do I have to, one option, do I have to try everything that I can to become the kind of person that I think is valuable and that other people think is valuable? Right? Or as people increasingly do, do I not face that question by giving in to all of the distractions that the culture gives us? The social media, the Netflix, the internet, the article after article, the hobby after hobby, the trip after trip, the, the mundane conversation after mundane conversation that we fill our lives with because it's really, really hard to sit still and be silent and ask the question, who am I really and can I be okay with that? Jesus' resurrection is the message of God's total victory over all of those fears. Right? You're, you're afraid of physical harm. You're afraid of your body failing. You're afraid of, of death, of dying. The resurrection is the proclamation of new life. It, it, it takes the teeth away from death's threat on you, right? The sting of sin is, is death. Where's your sting? The resurrection is also the proclamation of a new provision. Right? What, what, it, what the resurrection does is it shows that everything that Jesus said his father would do for us, look at the flowers, look at the grass, look at the birds, look at how God takes care of everything. Why are you worried about food and clothing and money and building bigger barns? Why? God is faithful. The father is faithful. Look, he has been faithful to raise Jesus from the dead. He will be faithful to provide every need that you have. You do not have to protect yourself. It's the promise of a new kingdom, a new economy, a new politic, a new way of living in the world. So you don't have to protect yourself by finding your group that you belong with. No. God rules and reigns and establishes and we can let go and trust. And finally, the resurrection is the proclamation of a new family. Right before his, right before his crucifixion in John 
17 is, is, or in John 13, in the upper room discourse, is the first time that Jesus moves from calling his disciples disciples to friends to brothers. And then he dies and is resurrected. And it is the promise that we too, as we die, as we fail, as we suffer, as we waste away, we can hope in the same resurrection to the same eternal family because our Father cares for us just like he cares for his son, Jesus. But here's the thing. All of those proclamations in the resurrection, all of those amazing messages, the news, the good news, it only matters if we are willing to allow the resurrection to reframe the way that we approach reality, the way that we approach our life. Thomas isn't just terrified to believe because he doesn't have proof or because his fear is overwhelming or he can't imagine that it would actually happen. He's terrified to believe because fear is more comforting than trusting that radically. When we fear things, when we hide from things, when we self-protect, we, we, we fear the things that we know. And we devise our ways of relating to them and protecting ourselves from them. So as long as I can have my eyes on what threatens me, I feel safer than actually trusting myself to the suffering that will come when I stop protecting myself because God has promised me life on the other side. The message of the resurrection only matters if you're willing to leave that locked room and bear yourself to the threats and hatred of the world and sin and death and the evil powers that have been conquered but are still flailing around you have to leave the locked room. Now, Jesus knows how hard, how scary, how unrealistic what I just said seems to many. How impractical. The disciples were there. And you know what he does? He just, he shows up. He gives them his presence. Now, I was sitting here, I was imagining this earlier. Um, imagine what this must have been like, right? So the Mary Magdalene sees Jesus, goes and tells the disciples. Two disciples see Jesus, talk to Jesus, go and tell the disciples. The, the, one of the synoptics has them arguing in this locked room. They're arguing with one another as to whether or not this is even a believable thing that they're saying. And in the midst, as they are arguing about these things, just imagine, you know, someone's arguing, but then in his peripheral vision, he just n- notices unbelievably, Jesus standing in the back corner of the room. And he stops and turns and looks at Jesus. And everyone that's arguing with him slowly realizes that he's looking at something. They all stop and turn. And the very person that they're arguing about whether or not he could be alive is standing there in the middle. And you know what he does? He gives them a new start. He gives them a new beginning. He gives them a new reference point from which to approach the world. This is the first time that God's people, his disciples, Jesus' friends are gathered all together and God addresses them. This is the first time. This is liturgy when God addresses his people together, gathered. This is the first Christian liturgy and the first thing said in this first Christian liturgy is peace. Peace be with you. Calm down, let go, sit down, relax, unburden yourself. 
peace. And then he shows him his hands. He shows him the marks of death. Death. It's the ultimate threat. It's what all of our anxieties ultimately derive from, our, our fear of that final death. And he shows them the marks of what they're afraid of in his hands and in his side. But he shows them those marks on a living body. He says, all of the things that you're afraid of, I have already gone to the extent. I have gone all the way down into the depth of them. And I have come back up so that you can know that I will bring you through them as well. You do not have to be afraid. He shows them the marks. He relativizes their fear in light of his resurrection. And then he says it again. He says, peace. Life has come from death. Family has come from hatred. Identity has come from nothingness, from fear, from destruction. Peace. Peter talks about this in, in that first. I mean, Peter, right? Peter experiencing that in this room. He talks about that. I think that's, that's what comes through over and over again in his first letter that we read this morning. He says, rejoice, even though right now, yeah, you're suffering. You are, you are receiving the marks of death in your trials. You're burning up <laughs> in a fire. But rejoice because through the resurrection of Christ you have been born again to a living hope, imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, hidden for you by God through faith. That means that even when the marks that we're receiving in our bodies, even when we die, even when death seems like it has had the final word for us, all that has done is planted that seed in the ground so that it can die and sprout up again into an imperishable, unfading life. It's no wonder that Peter ends that letter. Just remember how it talks in chapter 5? Finally, brothers, cast all your anxieties on God. Yes, you're afraid. Yes, you're anxious. Yes, life is hard and you suffer and you have pain and, you, and there's loss and grief. But take all of that and cast it on God. Not just tell him about it. Give it to God because it is only God who through that can give you back the, the imperishable hope of new life from all of those things. It is only the God of the resurrection that can get us through that without us locking ourselves in a room and dying in that room alone. So Christ adds something to the second time that he says peace. He says, says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you out. The life of the Christian post-Easter, which is all the time, but especially now today, the life of the Christian post-Easter is for us to hear and receive and understand Christ's promise of peace to us, his proclamation of peace to us, and then for us to go out as that peace in the world. Not just proclaiming it, but enacting it 
being it, living it, doing it, carrying it out, making that peace happen, he goes on. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive me always with you, always among you, always going with you, my presence, the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. How is it that peace comes about between us and God? Reconciliation. God's forgiveness being extended to us. Christ gives us his peace by saying, look, I, have, I was dead, but now I'm alive. You too. It's okay. Peace. Take that peace. Go out into the world. Go out into your communities, to your families, to your friends, to your businesses, to everywhere that you go. And instead of being the people that are still behind locked doors afraid, be the people who now with nothing to lose because God will restore it all tenfold. Be the people who leave the door, unlock the door, leave the room, go out and enact that peace, enact that forgiveness, enact that reconciliation in the culture around you. That is how the gospel is spread. Not through inviting people to a church service that is perfectly manicured to the culture so that people enjoy it and keep coming back. It's through you going out and living the peace that Jesus has established and won in his victory. That is what we are called to do, to be Christ's peace. So friends, as we go out, we first need to ask ourselves, why, why do we retreat to the room? Why do we lock the door? What is it, the fears that burden us, that make us hide? What, what is that? Take those to God. Cast those things on God. Go to Jesus. Hear his proclamation, his promise of peace and continuing presence with you. And ask that by his spirit he would help you go out and enact to be, to incarnate Christ's peace to those around you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.